Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The results of the Hartlepool by-election were devastating for Labour. A historic defeat that lost the party a safe seat they'd held for 62 years. The latest in a tsunami of Labour heartlands turning Tory. The red wall being painted blue. It's left many questioning who the modern Labour Party is for. Who does it represent? People are sick of Labour. So they want to change. I mean, all the steel works closed down. All we've seen up here is job losses. We've never seen no new investment. We never seen any benefits. People are just sick, sick of labour. Obviously, things you know aren't getting done. That's why everybody's voted Conservative this time. It's not the first time the Labour Party has been plunged into an existential crisis. Labour's history is, is pitted with periods where people are saying, oh, you're finished, you've got no, there's no purpose, you're irrelevant. We speak to a historian of the Labour Party for a quick guide to the history of Labour over the past 50 years, the crises that have shaped the party's identity and shaped the conversation around who and what the party stands for. There will always be the need for a Labour Party may not be the same Labour Party in 20 years' time. The Labour Party today isn't the same as it was 20 years, and new Labour wasn't the same as the party 20 years before that. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Labour's identity crisis. Another block in that so-called red wall that has been bulldozed out by Boris Johnson. A new dawn for Labour but not one they'd ever dreamed of, rejected in a seat that had been red for more than half a century. A colossal win in Hartlepool for the Conservatives and Boris Johnson, another blue brick in what used to be Labour's red wall, and the Tories are building right across the country. You used to just basically weigh the Labour vote. You didn't count it. (laughs) Stephen Fielding is Professor of Political History at the University of Nottingham and a prolific writer on the history of the Labour Party. When it was known that Labour had lost votes in Hartlepool, they hadn't made any um, progress since the terrible election of 2019 and had lost the seat. Gillian Wendy Mortimer, commonly known as Jill Mortimer, Conservative Party candidate, 15,529. Paul Daniel Williams for the Labour Party, 8,589 votes. I think many people took that result to signify something which 
I think a lot of people have been aware of for quite some time, that Labour's association with places like Hartlepool and the industrial heartlands of West Yorkshire, the coalfields of the North East, this really had come to an end. And that all attempts to try and re reconnect with those voters was really just for the birds. The Hartlepool result brought that into focus in the sense that it was showing that if it thought that winning back the Red Wall working class after Brexit would be easy, it's got another thing coming. But the problem for the party is it's got to win those back while not alienating other kinds of voters those are, you know, university-educated younger voters mm. who have got similar material interests but don't necessarily think of themselves in the same way. Has it always been a slightly sort of schizophrenic problem for Labour in trying to balance, you know, the demands of the heartlands with trying to broaden its appeal to, to people in cities? The Labour Party was set up principally to represent the interests of the trade unions in Parliament. In 1900, when the party was set up, that essentially meant, you know, the biggest unions were in the, you know, in the coal mines, in engineering, in those kinds of industries. But it was also realised that if Labour was going to get a majority, if it was going to become a party of government, it couldn't just be a party that represented the trade union interests. It had to go wider to other groups, you know, in the in the lower middle class, bank clerks, white collar workers and the middle class too. And there was also within the party itself a, a big difference of opinion as to what its ultimate purpose should be. Should it be a party that simply represented the material interests of ordinary people, but within capitalism, to make capitalism a bit more friendlier, a bit more gentle? Or was it, was it really to get rid of capitalism? Was it really to totally transform society? For the modern Labour Party, as it struggles to reconnect with its core voters, those questions about who or what the party represents have reached a point of crisis. But this isn't the first time the Labour Party has been forced to question its identity in fact, it's a question the party has been wrestling with for much of the past century. We're going to look back at three moments in Labour history when the party had to confront those questions. We're starting in 1959, when Labour had just lost its third election in a row. Labour lost in 1959 in a Britain that was more affluent than ever before. You've never had it so good, said the Conservative Prime Minister Harold Macmillan in 1958. And it was true, partly thanks to many of the reforms that the Labour government introduced between 45 and 1951, a welfare state, full employment, the National Health Service. The economy in Britain was, was booming in the 1950s. And the problem for Labour was that society and the economy as a consequence of all these changes was also being transformed. That the industries that had seen the great Labour victory of 1945, uh, the coal mining industry, engineering industry, by the later 50s, these were in decline, those industries. And, and the more rapid expanding industries, sort of more white collar industries, these were parts of the economy where there were no trade unions, that the link with Labour was quite weak. These were still working class people, but they didn't think of themselves as members of the working class in quite the same way. 
and were buying their own homes for the first time, buying refrigerators and televisions, things we take for granted today. But there was this sense that society was changing and it was going against the interests of the Labour Party, the political interests. It was the Conservatives who were benefiting. And so when Labour lost in 1959 for the third time on a declining, consistently declining vote, well, this certainly has been an impressive Conservative win. They've become the first government in modern British history to win three full terms of office in succession. On the other hand, this is a probably a Conservative country. When you come to look at the history of it, the Conservatives have been in office two-thirds of the time in the last hundred years. Um, the Labour leader, Hugh Gateskill, who had kind of been thinking along these terms before the election, took it as the opportunity for telling his own party conference, look... There's a danger we're going to be passed by history here. Um, we have to change how we think of ourselves. And the critical thing that he called for was for a change in the party's constitution and for Clause 4 of the party's constitution to be revised. For generations, the struggle for the soul of the Labour Party was all about Clause 4 of its constitution and whether it should be amended so it's probably useful to know a bit about it. It was adopted by the party in 1918, and for some Labour supporters, it defines the party's purpose. And the words are very kind of evocative. Labour's aim was to secure for the workers, by hand or brain, the full fruits of their industry and the most equitable distribution thereof that may be possible upon the basis of the common ownership of the means of production distribution and exchange. And that part of Clause 4, about the common ownership of the means of production, is really key. It's a commitment to socialism, to public ownership, to the nationalisation of industries so that they would be owned by the people rather than wealthy industrialists. And that was kind of it, so far as many people in the Labour Party were concerned. Nationalisation, you know, taking ever more, ever greater parts of the economy into the hands of government on behalf of the people, so that industry would be used not to, as they would say, exploit uh, the working class, but the profits that would be created would be invested back into those industries, back into society to help it become much more equal. I mean, tell me about Hugh Gateskill and tell me about his attitude towards Clause 4. Hugh Gateskill had become leader of the Labour Party in 1955 after its second defeat in a row. Gateskill was somebody who had a very clear vision of, of what the Labour Party should be about. It was not the vision that many of his own members had. He wanted Labour to become much more than a party of the working class, of the sort of traditional trade unionised working class. He didn't want to transform capitalism by replacing it with socialism. He believed you could reform it in all kinds of different ways to make it a system that would work in the interests of the majority. Mm, so less radical. And that this, I suppose, is the first time we see the Labour Party really making a pitch for the centre ground. Hugh Gateskill, some people might consider to be a centrist, but he still believed that the main aim of the Labour Party was to create a more equal society. Perhaps it wasn't in the same way that many others in his party would have agreed with. Maybe it was more modest, maybe it was more, much more reformist, but he still thought equality was, was the big issue that Labour should aim at. But he also believed that it could be achieved through a slightly reformed capitalist system, that you didn't have to get rid of capitalism to make society um, more equal. 
Although they were relatively modest reforms compared to what came later, Gateskill still struggled to bring his party with him. He faced fierce opposition from the hard left, including voices like Nye Bevan's. Here he is, responding to Gateskill's proposed reforms. What message are we going to send to the rest of the world? Are we going to send the message from the great labour movement, which is the mother and father of modern democracy and of modern socialism, that we in Blackpool in 1959 are going to turn our backs on our principles because of the temporary unpopularity in a temporary affluent society? To be fair, he did not carry yet the majority of his own members with him, many trade union leaders as well. I thought, he's trying to turn us into a middle-class party. He's trying to turn us into the Liberal Party. That was their fear, really, that he's trying to turn us into a party that we're not. What does that moment tell us about the Labour Party now? I think it just tells us that the Labour Party hasn't changed. I mean, it kind of highlights the perpetual dilemma that Labour has in terms of reconciling its ideals and what it thinks it stands for with what the voters want and trying to get people who don't buy into the great ideals or all of the great ideals of the Labour Party, but whose votes are still absolutely necessary for it to win a Commons majority. Now take us to the next big moment that transformed the history of the Labour Party. So take us back to the 90s and the emergence of Tony Blair as a leader who was bringing the party back. Get the past. No more bosses versus workers. We are on the same side, the same team, and Britain United will win. When Tony Blair became leader in 1994, for about 10 years, the Labour Party had been struggling with itself to try and reconcile an idea of what many of its own members had for it, which was a party of fundamental transformation um, of, of society and the economy embodied in the 1983 manifesto. The 1983 Labour manifesto was seen by many as a low point for the party. Written by the leader at the time, Michael Foote, it was dubbed by one Labour MP as the longest suicide note in history. And it didn't play well with voters either. Which saw Labour, you know, go to a catastrophic defeat. To reconcile what many members thought the purpose of their party was with electoral reality. By the time Tony Blair became leader, a penny had kind of dropped Um, Labour had lost the election in 79, 83, 87 and 1992. And so when Tony Blair's message was essentially, look, we've got to change. If if we don't change, we're never going to get into office. And, you know, the Labour Party lost the last four elections. And frankly, anybody who looks at the situation there and says, well, there's no changes that we need to make. The Labour Party was more receptive to that message than it ever been before. All those defeats had almost battered um, its members into accepting that. And so when Tony Blair called for a new Labour Party, to some extent, he was kicking at an open door. But there were still many people, you know, like Jeremy Corbyn and others who did not want to change. So there was still a battle that had to be had. It's an audacious step. Less than three months after taking over as party leader, Tony Blair is serving notice that he'll take no prisoners in his battle to modernise the Labour Party. He's striking at the very heart of traditional socialism, Clause 4 of Labour's constitution. And in a very tangible way, Tony Blair came along and 
managed to get rid of Clause 4. How significant was that? Tony Blair's revision of Clause 4 was literally a defining moment for his leadership and for the Labour Party under him. This is a modern party living in an age of change. It requires a modern constitution that says what we are in terms... He hopes by changing the clause, by essentially sidelining nationalisation, that clause, the clause 4 that Tony Blair introduced didn't mention common ownership of the means of production, distribution, exchange. It didn't abandon um, the idea of Labour being a party that would make society fairer, but it, it, it cut that link. It cut that link that many people in the party had considered to be the defining, the defining purpose of the party. What is the purpose of the Labour Party? It's to expand the state. It's to increase the power of government to the benefit of everybody. And Tony Blair was, was in the new clause for saying we don't need nationalisation. And by the way, it doesn't work. And by the way, people wouldn't vote for it anyway. This evening, there are cries of betrayal from the left. And even one charge that the leadership has declared war. I feel it's tragic that at a time when we ought to be launching a programme of unity against the Conservatives at the next general election, we're having an internecine warfare as a result of the leader declaring war on his own constitution. And tell me about the transformation the party saw under Tony Blair and the identity of the party, really. It shifted its focus, um, electoral focus. I mean, it it was kind of brutal in the way that it looked at the matter. I mean, New new Labour um, electoral strategists um, went about things in a very clear-headed way. So where are the votes? Where are the votes that we need to win power, right? And they kind of almost took for granted all of those voters in the North and the Midlands that had voted for the party through thick and thin, through the the Thatcher years, all the defeats. And they kind of took them for granted. Right, we've got them, but we basically need to focus on white-collar workers living in the South, um, maybe living in the West Midlands, relatively affluent people that had, had actually benefited from the Thatcher years. Those in the middle class, I mean, not just the lower middle class, but actually middle class areas, People who had become weary of the lack of investment in public services. I mean, the middle class and the working class have have the same kinds of interest in having better uh, schools, a better NHS. So they try to create an alliance between, you know, the dispossessed and the possessed, as it were. Uh, But the focus was on those in the South who, who had not been voting Labour since at least 1979, 1983, to give them a reason. But also to say, you can vote for us, we can improve things, but we're not going to make you any poorer. We're not going to increase your taxes. Well, one of the other things that New Labour seemed to embrace was sort of the global market and globalisation, which did mean that some of those dying industries in the North, not only were they not getting help from the government to work out how to replace the industries that were dying, but that process was being accelerated because of competition from elsewhere. How do you think that's left a a legacy on Labour voters? This was really the defining nature of New Labour. It accepted the market and and it accepted the limitations of what the market could and couldn't do for people. That was probably the biggest difference between New Labour and what had gone before. And also possibly the origins of the drift away from the party, um, the consequences of which we can see now in those red wall seats. But essentially, Tony Blair was saying, well, our hands are tied. You know, we can, we can make things better for you in terms of schools and hospitals, public services. 
But basically, the new Labour philosophy was let Britain be part of this globalised economy, let it all rip, and then eventually people in Britain will be better off. Many people in Britain were better off as a result of this, but the very people, arguably, that the party had been founded to represent most, they were the ones that benefited least. But did the electoral triumphs for Labour in the Blair years set the party on a course for the crisis it's in now? We'll have more in just a moment. But before that, here's a little letter from the editor. Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In all of the analysis of what's happened since the Hartlepool by-election, at one point, Peter Mandelson who was a key architect of the Blair years and the new Labour project, he described the recent history of Labour as lose, 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 lose. Blair, Blair, Blair. Lose, 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 lose. Is there a chance that Blair, although he made the party much more electable in the period when he was in power, did he also end up alienating some of that base, some of the heartlands 
I mean, the leadership of Tony Blair uh, of the Labour Party, first of all, it changed how the party presented itself. So it could win the votes of people in the South and, and, and the South East. And it did that in two respects. It said we, we accept the market, the limitations of the market, but also we're, we're a much more socially liberal party as well. And they were introduced various reforms, you know, in terms of equality between men and women, between those of different sexualities. And those, those two things weren't exactly the most positive changes that many people in the North and in those red wall seats would have seen. They were essentially getting um, a government, a party, that wasn't doing much for them materially and also challenged some of their more traditional kind of cultural views. With Blair, he just seemed to be increasing the distance between the party and its traditional voters um, along economic and and more cultural lines. So in, in some ways, Tony Blair did plant the seeds of of the troubles um, that Labour is now confronting. Take us to a third moment in in the recent history of the Labour Party, which seems to have sort of helped shape the, the current the current climate. Take me to 2010. Gordon Brown was in power. And it was a particular incident when he was out and about, glad-handing the public, and the whole thing seemed to backfire. I mean, I vividly remember where I was when I first heard of that. It's, for some people, it's, it's like the, the JFK moment. Where were you <laughs> when you heard about this? And, and I'm sure Gordon Brown will never forget. <laughs> You're a very good uh, woman. You've served the community all the life. I, I you am. Deserve... I've worked for the Rochdale Council for good. 30 you years. Deserve... And, and I work with children and handicapped children. Oh, well, I think working and with now... children is so important, isn't it? So and, important. And, and Have you been at some I, of the ch- children's centres? Labour wasn't really going to win the 2010 election. And it wasn't going to be an easy campaign. There was some sense that voters from across the board were moving away from the party. But when Gordon Brown went to Rochdale, which in other circumstances might have been seen as a, a safe Labour seat in the in the north northwest of England, just north of Manchester. And during during the campaign, as he's I think he's just trying to get back into his car and go off to another meeting, he comes across Gillian Duffy, a grandmother, you know, working class, and a a usual Labour voter. And they get into a conversation, the cameras are around them. And, you know, Gordon Brown isn't famous for his ability to interact with the great British public. And, you know, the sense of awkwardness was there. But nonetheless, they got into a conversation and Duffy asked him, you know, where are these, where are these immigrants all coming from? You know, where are they all flocking from, I think she said. Six months, you, you, you uh, six months. You can't say anything about the immigrants because you're saying that you're... you're, no. uh, you're but all these Eastern Europeans what are coming in... Uh, Where are they flocking well, from? A million people come from Europe, but a million people, British people, have gone into Europe. You, knew, you do know there's a lot of British people staying in Europe as well. Look, come back to what you were, your initial principles, helping people. That's what we're in the business of doing. A decent health service. And he, he kind of gave her a kind of a non-answer, but he kind of went, Gordon Brown, as, as that sort of thing he does, and then made his exit in his car. And that, that was apparently, you know, a successful little meeting. She was quite happy with what he said and was still intending to vote for Labour. But in the car as it was going away, he'd forgotten that he was mic'd up. She'd never have put me with up with that woman. Whose idea was that? I don't know, I didn't see. Sue, I think. What did she say? Oh, everything. She's just a sort of bigoted woman that said she used to be Labour. I mean, it's ridiculous. We could hear him say that she was a bigoted woman, you know, oh, 
thank goodness I got away from that bigoted woman. And then it became public. What that did, it dramatised the difference, the kind of chasm that had been starting to open up between the Labour Party under Blair and Brown and those whose votes they had once taken for granted over the issue of immigration. Now you said to me before that you were a Labour supporter. I mean, yes. what's this done to that? What's that well, I, just, I don't think I'll vote. I don't think I'll vote now. It's a postal vote and I don't have to send it in. He's just absolutely... Well, it shut me down completely. More particularly how, how the party under those leaders sort of looked upon those kinds of voters as soon as out of earshot, slagging them off and saying what they really felt. And although it would take a number of elections for it to become much more apparent, that really did highlight a fissure that would get bigger and bigger and bigger between um, the Labour Party and those that had once been its bedrock support. Do you think people realised at the time when it happened, when the incident happened? I mean, did the media, did people realise that this was a, a massive moment? I don't think so. I mean, it was a massive moment in the sense that it made Gordon Brown look hypocritical. A microphone picked you up saying that was a very bigoted woman. Is that what you said? I apologise if I've said anything like that. Uh, What I think she was raising with me was uh, was an issue about uh, immigration and saying that there were too many um, uh, people from Eastern Europe in the country. Gordon Brown went on the Jeremy Vine show to try and repair the damage. The video clip shows him with his head in his hands, looking completely despondent. It made, you know, the Labour Party look a little bit dishonest. In retrospect, we can see what that really did signify. It was much more than Gordon Brown's embarrassment and his hypocrisy. It was the the first public sign, really, in very, very dramatic way, that Labour really did have a problem with these people. For decades now, the Labour Party has struggled with the tensions at its core. But coming back to the present, how should the modern Labour Party position itself now? Should it move further to the left or further to the centre? Who does it represent? Labour has been here before. It has faced sort of um, an existential crisis at least three times in its post-war history. People have asked, what is the purpose of the Labour Party? Why is it not getting enough working class votes that it should? Um, Why can't it make a coalition between key elements within the electorate? Why is it the Conservatives always seem to be winning elections? And the death of the Labour Party has been one that's been foretold many times. And yet somehow or other, the party's managed to pull itself together and focusing on the imperative of needing to win votes and putting its own principles to some extent to one side. It's been able to do that. Um, There's no guarantee it will continue to be able to do that. But it's certainly true that the problem today is at its most acute. The sort of retreat of working class people, it's not so much they're drifting away from the party. Actually, many are very antipathetic to the party. Um, And they they no longer see it, not so much as a party that can no longer really advance their interests very much, but a party which is against their interests, as exemplified by the Brexit vote, and that Labour's own members are increasingly, you know, if if we talk about Britain having having a culture war, they're on one side of the culture war, most of Labour's members, Mm. and many of them don't want to make compromises to win back 
um, a relatively culturally conservative working class. They feel it is something which is beneath them. In that case, if, if winning back the working class is beneath them, who is the Labour Party for now? The Labour Party today is, is a, a rather strange creature. Most of its individual members are middle class, highly educated, many of them living in very affluent parts of the country. They've got a very definite profile and people of very liberal opinions, I mean, socially liberal opinions, very much Remainers. They are kind of at the cutting edge of the cultural changes that have seen more traditional, less well-educated, poorer, older voters drift, drift away from the party. People see this as a very difficult task for any leader, whoever it may be, Keir Starmer, Angela Rayner, Jeremy Corbyn, Ed Miliband, Tony Blair, it would be difficult for one single leader to transcend all you know, those divisions, given the difficulties, and, and particularly when they're faced with a very strange Conservative Party, which is itself transforming, and with a, with a leader, Boris Johnson, who is possibly unique in terms of his persona and ability to appeal to the very voters who support Labour desperately needs. So we've discussed the history of the Labour Party at some length now. Tell me, finally, does it have a future? I mean, Labour's history is is pitted with periods where people are saying, oh, you're finished, you've got no purpose, you're irrelevant. As a historian of the Labour Party, one of the, the characteristic accompaniments of the history of the Labour Party is people who have said the Labour Party hasn't got a future. But... Um, there will always be the need for a Labour Party. Um, it may not be the same Labour Party in 20 years' time. The Labour Party today isn't the same as it was 20 years, and new Labour wasn't the same as the party 20 years before that. So the party changes, uh, the Labour may remain the same. So there will always, I think, for the foreseeable future, subject to, I'm touching wood here, if you can hear me, there will always be a Labour Party. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Professor of Political History at Nottingham University, Stephen Fielding. The producer today was Asia Fuchs, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by David Crackles. If there's a story you think we should be covering, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do get in touch send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.